This is TK331, a Star Wars EU slash Legends podcast. I'm Crystal, a Star Wars enthusiast, but I've never read a thing I liked that I couldn't complain about a little bit. And I'm Thomas, a Star Wars completionist who has previously read the entirety of the EU. And today we're going to continue our discussion that is as long as the book itself about <laughs> iJedi. Yeah, this very special <laughs> bonus episode, we present the second half of iJedi. Is it really a very special bonus episode? I think so. Or is it just a regular? I'm counting it as a bonus episode. Okay. <laughs> so last we left off a week ago, <laughs> Corrin was getting ready to leave Yavin 4. He and Luke had had their big discussion. A Star Destroyer had arrived to pick him up. One guess who the Star Destroyer belongs to. Why this is Corrin's ride is a big question mark to me, but, you know. So the second half starts with Corrin flying Mara's fighter up to the Star Destroyer, and he is greeted by some of the guards there. And they want his lightsaber, and he's like, <laughs> no. Fair enough. So we all knew it was coming. This is the errant venture. This is Booster Star Destroyer. So Booster is the next to show up and demand to know where Mirax is. Corrin then reveals, quote-unquote, that she's been missing for ten weeks. Booster asks what coward made the decision that he shouldn't know his daughter is missing. Corrin says he talked with others and listened to their opinions, but he made the decision in the end. Throughout this whole conversation, like always, Booster is acting pretty weird, and Corrin accuses him of already having known all along that Mirax was missing and why. Booster admits he was testing Corrin, and Corrin passed when he accepted responsibility. I will just never be done being sick of this posturing. Between the two of them? Bullshit. I <laughs> just... It's its all Booster here, and it often is. Like, this, this uh, trope is never going to appeal to me. This, like, super overprotective father who, like, doesn't trust their daughter to make their own decisions or judgment calls and who's always going to like basically sit on his star destroyer with a shotgun waiting for a convenient enough reason to blow Corrin's head off what an image like i'm not Corrin's number one fan or anything but this is like so tiresome but we had to fit it in there we had to yep like the story's about mirax being missing so obviously booster has to regress to this point the story couldn't instead be that he rises to the occasion and willingly works together with his son-in-law to save the woman that they both love. That would be too mature. I mean, after this moment, they do work together a lot better. Yes, but Booster always has an attitude about it. He does. He has an attitude about everything. God, that's a stupid name, too. Parents <laughs> <laughs> don't like him. No one likes him. Corrin then tells Booster about the lead that Mara gave him which will take him to Nalhutta. Booster is ready to go right now, but Corrin says no. He'll be the only one going, and Booster, he's not too happy about it, but Corrin's like, Star Destroyer showing up, it's not going to help things. Corrin just asks Booster for two things, to get him as much data on the invids as possible, to which Booster boasts he's better than Card at getting info. But are you better than Kraken? Question mark, question mark. Potentially. We'll see. And... Corrin wants Booster to get Corrin in and out of Corellia. Booster gets Corrin a fake ID, and Corrin thinks it's even better than the one he used to get onto Coruscant with the Rogue Squadron many years ago. 
that's not surprising. Like at that time, the New Republic slash Rebellion still had very limited resources. And something like Booster or Card, like the, the heads of these smuggling operations have just so much that they can do with this kind of stuff. Yeah, Booster probably gets a new ID printer, like top of the line legit model every like month or something. Yeah, or however they do it. What are the names for the months in Star Wars? Has that ever been discussed? I think that varies from planet to planet. But I'm sure there's a Coruscant standard system, but I don't yeah. know it. Coruscant is actually given three IDs. One to get in, one for when he's on the planet, and then one to get out. When he arrives on Corellia, it's to a very different world than he remembers. Corsac is actually no longer an entity. It's now called the Public Safety Service. The Public Safety Service, or PSS, first appeared in the Corellian trilogy in the novel Ambush of Corellia. This is Stackpole once again just connecting his book with something that was published earlier that takes place later in the timeline. Makes sense. Corin basically gets a taxi and heads for his grandfather's house. But he arrives at an estate, which is confusing to him. Looks different than the last time he was here. A little bit. It's been at, a while. It's been years. It's been a while. <laughs> at first he's turned away, but then he says that Kieran Halcyon is here. And to that, he is eventually let in. His grandfather greets him in the garden and the two hug. Though Rostick says Corrin shouldn't be here. So Rostick Horn had files on a lot of people. So at some point in the past, after Corrin left Corellia, someone burned the house down, hoping to destroy said files. They did fail, and certain bits of information started turning up that shouldn't have in compromising places. So in payment for his long years of service to Corsac, the government bought this land and built Rostec this estate. He's now a big political influencer, and sending flowers from his garden is his calling card. Yeah, they're, because the government built it, there are just, you know, listing devices and cameras all over. There are bugs, basically, and the staff is on government payroll, but they all like him and don't really listen to the government, so they actually work for him instead of them. And he just sweeps for the bugs and basically just destroys them all the time. His whole life is one big spy game. Yeah. I think he enjoys it, too. Yeah, it's satisfying to him. He tells Corrin that he has spent the last half century protecting Corrin's heritage, and he'd be disappointed if Corrin never came for it. Apparently, he developed a way to store the knowledge in his flowers. He digitized the data and inserted it into the genetic material of the flowers. Also, the flowers he sends as political messages often have certain data in them. This is his way of being a troll. Basically, usually the data that's in the flower is the very decryption key the recipient would need to get at the data that Rostec has on them. I do not understand how this works. So he talks a lot about junk DNA, basically, and how he's able to encode data into it. Uh-huh. And if you know how to get at how to uncode that junk DNA, you can yeah. read what's there. Yeah. I wonder if that's a thing that you could actually do. Or just it was a dream from the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> they talk about the Force and Corrin's experiences, and Rostick says that Nija, his grandfather, could also do the mental projection trick as well, but had no talent for telekinesis. Really? It's a family trait? Yep. Apparently, and this doesn't quite match up with canon perfectly, but we'll go with it. Nija survived the Clone Wars, but died shortly after. And I guess, arguably, you could say a lot of Jedi survived the Clone Wars and died shortly after. <laughs> yep, it depends on what you mark as the end of the Clone Wars. Yep. 
And Rostick doesn't know how Nija died. A Kamasi Jedi named Elenic Itkla brought his effects, but no body, since the bodies of all Jedi Masters fade upon death, as we all know. Uh-huh. Yep. Every single one of them. Sorry, Qui-Gon. <laughs> I guess you just weren't Jedi Mastery enough. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't on the council. I don't think Nija ever was either. You don't know. There's no way a Corellian would be on the council. It's not stated. No, but thinking back to when the Clone Wars ends of who's on the council, Nija's not one of them. Yeah, but this is a different canon. <laughs> Fair enough. You know? <laughs> I mean, they didn't even think that a council existed, I suppose. Like, I don't know. What did the what did they what did Stackpole think the Jedi leadership was like? Because I don't think we've heard the words ca- like council or Jedi council in all of these books that we've read since Bakura. That's fair. Yeah, I mean, Obi Wan disappeared, Yoda disappeared, so all Jedi masters disappear in Stackpole's mind. And, you know, that's a pretty reasonable assumption for ninety eight. I feel like sure. Sadly, Ex- a year later in ninety nine, that would be done away with. George was like. No. Uh, I don't need to match up with this. Qui-Gon was a Sith. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Also, Nija, uh, Nija's lightsaber didn't pass through to Rostic because apparently the Galactic Museum asked for it. Which is why Corrin found it all those years later. Uh-huh. Like, if, you had, if he has died during the Clone Wars, I could believe the museum asking for the lightsaber. I'm not to be given, but I could believe them asking. Yeah. But post-Clone Wars with Palpatine immediately taking over and saying the Jedi betrayed the Republic, I can't see them asking for they it. They asked for the lightsaber and he didn't give it to them while he was alive, so they killed him. Maybe. Except that that's not actually how he died. We'll discover later. Spoilers. <laughs> Rostek has Corrin dig in the compost pile, and he finds a diffuser pad, which is often used by smugglers to confuse scanners. So Corrin's like, "Aha! Uh-huh, there's something under here. This is where the secret stuff is. While Corrin digs, they talk about Mirax. Rostek is actually very happy that they found each other, regardless of their respective family histories, which is very... It's a nice change from Booster. It's very magnanimous of him. <laughs> Corrin uncovers a storm cellar eventually, and there's an old chest in it. Rostick says he probably should have destroyed it, but he just couldn't bring himself to do so. It contains everything that Yelenic brought back of Nietzsche's. Corrin finds clothes, coins, a first aid kit, an empty slot for a lightsaber, and holos of people, some he recognizes and some he doesn't. He sees his grandfather and a Kamasi who must be Yelenic. He also sees a young Jandadona and Bailogana, and he thinks back to when Jan says, you look familiar, because he had met his grandfather. He sees images of his grandparents together and some of his father as a child. And I think this is like one of the few times I've ever seen a picture of his dad as a child. It's kind of, it's both nice and also a little weird. Corrin takes out the clothes and hollows, but puts everything else back and reburies the storm cellar. That night, and this seems kind of risky to me, but you know, you do you. Boys trip. Rostick takes Corrin out for a nice dinner, just out in public. <laughs> It's the first time they've actually spent together as two adults. His grandfather clearly likes and respects him, which helps him put to bed the concerns raised by Exar Kun. That night, after he's gone to bed, Korn has a dream. And also, wasn't there a line here about how Jedi don't dream or something that also was really weird? Oh, yeah, that was very strange. That doesn't seem... Yeah. Anyway, Korn has a dream where he is actually Nija. He is seeing everything from Nija's point of view. 
and he's joined by Elenik, or he assumes it's Elenik because it's a Kamasi. I don't think his name is actually ever said. And a Jedi general in brown and khaki desert robes. From Nija's perspective, Korn is fighting an Anzadi. We all remember them from Soup's On, that <laughs> wonderful, creepy story. Oh, I wish I could forget. But, you know, 20 years from now, that's the only story from that collection I'm going to remember. You think? Yep. Oh, because it was so Creepy. bonkers. Not the melting of Greedo's head? I mean, at the time of recording this, I still have two stories left to read in that collection. Because we're a little ahead on recording novels versus short stories. So maybe there's an even more bonkers one at the end. But you were not reacting to those nearly as much as you were reacting <laughs> to Soup's On while you were reading it. So I kind of doubt it. Fair enough. Elenic and the other Jedi are engaged with two others as well in a lightsaber fight. And the other Jedi is human. Yes. We don't know who he is. He's not identified. He's just another a Jedi general. Mm-hmm. Which in today's current canon means nothing because all Jedi were generals. Yes. In the Clone Wars. Yes. In 98, Sackville's leaving a clue as to who this Jedi is without saying who it is. Uh-huh. And I never would have put these two things together unless you pointed it out but to me. We'll, we'll get to that later. Yeah. During the fight, Nija is stabbed through the heart, but as he stabbed, he drains the lightsaber of its energy, and with the energy from the lightsaber, he picks up the Anzadi and crushes him in the force. Yeah, now tell me how that's not dark side power. He dies doing it? I guess. It and requires a sacrifice? That sounds even more dark side. His own sacrifice rather than someone else. Okay, fair enough. Like, Nija knows they can't win this fight. The Anzadi's too good, so he sacrifices himself. Mm-hmm. So the others can live. Mm-hmm. A very halcyon thing to do. Mm-hmm. Allegedly. <laughs> based on what we've heard. At this point, Corrin then wakes up. He thinks the dream is telling him that he needs to stop trying to be his grandfather. Corrin Horn is not a Jedi. What? He needs to be himself. What? In Corsac, he would investigate and infiltrate a pirate gang, so that's what he's going to do now. Okay. I was so, like, this was the point at which Corrin's identity crisis started giving me real whiplash. That's fair. Because it would have made more sense to me to start at, I'm Corsac, I'm going to infiltrate these people, you know? Mm. And instead we've gone, like, he didn't even really try that method. He was just straight up, let me go try and levitate some rocks. I mean, he he had nothing to, he couldn't infiltrate them at the time because he had no knowledge of them. He only could now. He spent approximately 12 hours thinking about ways to find out anything about Fair, the situation like, he could have spent some more resources he could have but kraken and new republic intelligence like ayala had not found them yeah but as much as i hate to bring him into this booster I or mean, booster, even card booster had found nothing booster didn't know they were the location from a meta standpoint you could have written it different fair enough i'm not saying what exists currently i'm saying to fit the story that i'm describing Somebody could have had some information okay. somewhere. Okay. Anyway, I don't see how he has a very clear vision of his historical lineage as a Jedi and is like, yeah, that's clearly not. I, I should completely abandon that part of my identity. This boy needs probably some sleep. <laughs> 
and to meditate for a while and just get his head on straight before he goes running off to do something else. Because that's all he's doing is just running off to do something else. I read something recently in a book that I did not finish. It was about it was a book about anxiety. (laughs) But one of the things that was said was like, sometimes you don't need to follow the line of thinking of don't just stand there, do something. It should be don't just do something. Stand there. Just Mm. think about things for a second. Just slow down. I feel like Corin needs that right now. Yeah, he does. (laughs) Corin leaves Corellia under the name Genos Edanium which is apparently a, a different identity, this one set up by Rostek. Rostek called Booster's work marginally adequate. So he wanted to give Corrin a better than marginally adequate identity in order to leave Corellia. He's okay with Mirax, he's not okay with Booster, clearly. <laughs> and that's fair, I feel like. No one's okay with Booster. <laughs> How many people do you think are waiting to stab that guy in the neck? So many. Certainly me. His daughter's first in line, though. <laughs> Rostek also told Corin that he wasn't a fool for going to Yavin for training at the Academy. He's going to send what information he has about the Jedi to Luke so that Luke and the Academy can benefit from it. Luke's like, what's all these flowers for? (laughs) (laughs) What am I supposed to do with these? I feel like Rostek's trying to tell him, like... Be a Jedi still. Hey. Like, he tells him how Nija would combine being a Jedi and Corsac. Yeah. And Corn's not quite getting the message yet. Like, you don't have to choose. Be both. You can choose different parts of those things at different times as they benefit you. But you don't have to, like... I don't know. Why would you... This alter mind thing is so useful. Why would you just ditch that? Corn also asks for any files that his grandfather has on George Cardas. Which is something that Mara had earlier requested of Corrin. He just tells his grandfather he uses information to pay off a debt. And before he leaves, Corrin also gives Rostek Nija's lightsaber. It won't be safe to carry where he's going. And also, he just doesn't feel like he's earned it. And Rostek tells him it'll be waiting for him when you're ready for it. Which, at this rate, will be probably next week. And then he'll give it back again. And then it'll be a week after that. And then he'll give it back again. I think you can choose to want to be the Jedi, but still think you're not worthy of the lightsaber of your grandfather right now. I guess. It's just a, it's just an object. Well, also, I think he's right that if it goes with him, it will, he'll be caught. I agree with that part. It's going to be hard to conceal a lightsaber without your handy-dandy astromech, who you've left behind. Why am I getting glared at? Basically as coldly as Wedge once wiped Minoc's memory. <laughs> never gonna let go of that nope (laughs) Corrin leaves Corellia in a shuttle called the Tinta Blue but it's attacked by the Invids and a couple of them board it how convenient he fights them off gets to the bridge and with some help flies the ship away and heads for the errant venture conveniently Mara and Lando are already there Mara asks how Luke is and Corrin then tells her about the conversation that the two of them had she's like Ooh. She's like, I'm not going back to Yavin 4 for a while. <laughs> he also gives her the files on George Cardas that his grandfather had given him. So one of the things that I really liked in this book was the evolution of Mara and Corrin's relationship. With Zahn's help, Stackpole did a really good job of writing Mara's characterization throughout this book. And I really liked watching her go from, oh, this guy doesn't like me too. Oh, 
he's my friend and we're doing favors and helping each other out. And, and I like that evolution. <laughs> the only kind of friendship that she understands. Yeah, the pretty exchange much. of favors. <laughs> and for those of you who read it, I also really like how this connects to the Hand of Thrawn duology. God, I just want to get to those books. It's not just Mara who connects to those books is all I'm going to say. I don't want to read whatever the heck is next instead. That's fair. Because you keep talking about it like it's going to be a bad time. <laughs> the Clister Trilogy is rough is what I'm going to say. But <laughs> you will have Starfighters of Audumar, which I think you'll like. I'm not here for a bad time. <laughs> I don't want it. <laughs> anyway, based on the data that Corrin got from his interrupted shuttle ride... Booster has identified the Invid ship as the Backlash, which is actually a good name. I like that ship name. It was crewed by Ederman Bative pirates operating out of the Kuaman system. Uh, dear listener, there were three words in that sentence that I have no idea how to pronounce. <laughs> so many vowels. I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best. <laughs> the Empire showed up and crushed them. Only 300 out of 8,000 survived. They now call themselves the Survivors and are led by Jacob Neve. Following the Emperor's death, they've cool. returned to the Cumin system. Sounds like Cumin, like the spice. To the planet Corcrus. Booster wants to go there right now, but Corrin says it's a bad idea. He's going to infiltrate them instead. Mm-hmm. He's not going to have like any of the things that somebody doing an undercover operation would usually have. Like, I don't know, a handler... An information network he can access at a distance. Backup. This yeah. is like he thinks he's doing the Corsac thing, but I don't think Corsac would rubber stamp this operation. Probably not. No. No. So Corns beholden only to himself. Apparently, therefore, he flies the stolen shuttle to the survivors and says that he's here to offer his services as a pilot. And they're like, "You just took the shuttle from us, and now you're returning it." Uh huh. Interesting. And we're too stupid to be suspicious of that, I guess. <laughs> he is introduced to Jacob Neve, Captain Tyrese Gert, who leads Bolt Squadron, the elite squadron of the survivors, and Remark Sasiru. He's offered a spot on one of the lesser squadrons, Rock Squadron, which has an opening because Remart was recently promoted to Bolt Squadron from them. Rock Squadron is led by Nak Keck. His wingmate is a Shistavan named Kate Shravel. Love Kate. By chance, because of course, the Force, Coin's designation <laughs> is Rock 9, and he is a member of Three Flights. I was going to say the same thing. Hyperspace takes as long as the plot needs it to take, and the Force shows up to make the plot work where it really shouldn't. So the way the Invids operate is they show up to Corcus and say, hey, we need X number of squadrons from the survivors and other pirate groups who live there. And then they are, depending if the invids don't ask for them specifically, they will choose these squadrons at random just so everyone basically gets a chance to keep flying missions and no one is just left out entirely. So for one of these missions, Rock Squadron is chosen at random for an attack against the Empire. And Corn's like, yeah, I can do this. I can fight the Empire. Pirate life, good. <laughs> Corn flies well, but he primarily uses his ion cannon in the fight. Why? Against the Empire? Just kill them. <laughs> <laughs> These are more just civilians within the Empire rather than Imperial forces. Okay. And when questioned, he says the survivors will back off the next time the Invid show up, making it easier for them in the future just to take what's there. 
And by survivors, you do mean the Imperial survivors, not Corrin's group called the survivors. That is correct. It's a confusing name to choose for your pirate gang. A little bit. Rock 4 was destroyed in the fight, so Kate moved up to replace him, and Corrin was voted the leader of 3 Flight because he was so... Good. Fancy boy flying. Right? We know that he's a fighter. (laughs) Over the next month, he works on training and drilling the pilots in his flight, which goes... As well as you'd think. Yeah. Trying to instruct hungover pilots is about as tough as teaching a Rancor to sing and dance, and the Rancor's attitude about the whole process would probably be better. Corn thinks to himself. A thought that he has. <laughs> Corrin spends his free time exploring and wandering the city of Larnia. Kate sometimes joins him, and they become friends, which I don't think he was expecting to do. No. Corrin also joins Kate and the others at one of the local cantinas. Remart shows up, and it's clear that the rest of the squadron was happy to see him go and doesn't like seeing him back. He insults Kate, but Corrin sticks up for her and insults Remart right back. Corrin keeps needling him until he throws a punch, but Corrin knew it was coming and just shrugs it off. Then Remart comes at him, and Corrin quickly deals with him. I like the scene. Yeah. I don't like Remart. I don't either. Later, Kate tells Corrin the story of how Remart charmed her and pretended to be her friend. And eventually he made demands of her and she rejected him, so he beat her physically. Nice guy. Great. She has also sensed that Corrin is hiding some kind of pain about a lover. He has no companions and drinks only enough to fit in, rather than get drunk. So Corrin concocts a story about why he's here. His lover's cousin controls the Tinta line of ships and she has decreed that they can't be together. If they do get together anyway, his lover's side of the family will be completely cut off from the Tinta fortune. So Corrin is here to destroy the Tinta family and their fleet. The Tinta Blue, the shuttle that he stole, is from this fleet of ships. Mm-hmm. He is connecting the dots. In order to rescue his lover, Kate says Corrin must become a true invid, which means serving on the invidious. There are two ways to do this. The first is by merit, which won't happen if he stays with Rock Squadron because they are so often overlooked. He will need to make it to Bolt Squadron to be noticed. The second way is to become one of Tavira's lovers. Gross. She has an appetite for men. Gross. And Kate says Corn might be handsome enough for her tastes. <laughs> Corrin, like Crystal, is not on board with this idea, <laughs> and he asks how long will it take for him to become a Bolt? <sighs> We'll talk more about this later. Over the next several months, this is taking a long time. There's yeah, there's not, a lot of time skipping. Yeah. There's not a lot of action for Rock Squadron. Again, they're chosen at random if the Invins don't say we want Bolt specifically. So as a result, they don't always see a lot of action if the Invins aren't doing very much. Just hanging out, dicing, drinking, training. Doing pirate things. However, in one of the few engagements that they have, Captain Keck dies, and Corrin is elected the squadron's new leader. Under Corrin, the rocks significantly improve. They aren't quite as good as Bolt Squadron, but they are getting close. He's also managed to encourage most of them to use ion cannons whenever possible. So, good on you, Corrin. Yeah. Let's keep the bloodshed to a minimum. Finally, the rocks are chosen for a mission, along with a lot of others, for the Zothel mission. Tavir asks for the Bolts, Rock, and Hawk squadrons, all three squadrons come from the survivors, as well as other Invid groups. It is the largest task force that Corrin's been a part of with the Invids. 
the survivor squadrons are allowed to dock on the Invidious during the travel to Zafel. How nice. Mm-hmm. However, the Invidious drops out of hyperspace seven seconds too early. It turns out there's an interdictor cruiser present and a rogue squadron is there. That's rough. Rut row. Corrin convinces Captain Gertz, the leader of Bolt Squadron, that the survivors should target the Y-Wings with ion cannons because Republic forces will be forced to defend the Y-Wings, making it easier for them to escape. Them being, you know, the, the Invids. The Invidious has its own squadrons on board, of course, and they elect to fight the X-Wings. Corrin spots Tycho and sends him a force vision of Corrin's fighter morphing into an X-Wing with his old colors, but he drops the vision as the fight begins, and he's unsure if it made any impression or did anything at all. Or did Tycho just go, what did I just <laughs> see? Oh my god! <laughs> I am on some stuff, apparently. What was in that lunch they served? What prank has been pulled on me? <laughs> in the battle, Corrin flies well enough to earn the attention of some of the rogues. First up, Gavin comes for him, then Oral. Corrin is able away to get from both of them. But then Tiger targets him. Wasn't that just heartbreaking when he realizes that it's first Gavin and then Oral is targeting him? He's like, I can't fight back, they're my friends. It was fine for me. Oh, it wasn't heartbreaking? No, no, and I thought it was really funny when Tycho targets him. <laughs> yeah, Tycho was funny. Tycho's a good pilot, and I was like, oh, Corin, your entire story may come to an end right here because you didn't warn anyone that you were going undercover. Like, I'm not saying that he should tell a lot of people. But I'm Tycho. saying maybe Tycho and Kraken would have been good entities to inform. Maybe. Maybe. Corrin runs to the Invidious, but Tycho fires proton torpedoes after him. Corrin is able to shoot the torpedoes down using maneuvers that Tycho had taught him. On an open comm, Tycho says, Very fancy flying. To which Corrin replies, Didn't want you to think I was a green pilot, Rogue Lead. Because Corrin's colors are green. Yeah, he chooses his wording very carefully, saying, Hey, it's me, guys. Don't kill me, please. <laughs> and I just, I really like this instance of Corrin having to fight Rogue Squadron. I almost wish this is either A, been longer, or B, happened more than once. Yeah. Of, like, really having to deal with something really difficult while in the cockpit with the invids. Yeah. Because there mo- was clearly not enough road to do that with. Yeah. Because most of the time, he's able to get away with just using ion cannons, not killing too much, because like, it's often civilians they're dealing with, but the rogues are a whole other matter. He even talks at one point about how like he remembers the different like moral quandaries that came up when doing undercover work with Corsac, and how like it was always a line that every individual who was undercover had to choose how far they were going to go across mm-hmm. it. I don't feel like Corrin was presented with enough moral quandaries during his time undercover, necessarily. Agreed. And when he was presented with moral quandaries, I personally think they were the wrong ones. Not here, though. This was good. In the fight, the survivors only lost six pilots, two of them from Mark Squadron. Afterward, Tavir, so they all get back on the Star Story, they leave, they run away, because they were not expecting a big fight. Mm-hmm. Afterward, Tavir comes down to the hangar to see the pilots. Captain Gert was the one who relayed Corrin's plan to the Invidious, and since it worked so well, she's been promoted to the Star Destroyer to lead their squadrons. Colonel Lamner disagreed with the plan and went after the rogues. He's no longer here, so Captain Gert gets to take his place. Gert says that Captain Adanian was the one who came up with the plan. That's Corrin. So Tavira decides to make Corrin the leader of Bolt Squadron to replace Captain Gert. 
Remart pipes up and says that they elect their leaders, and Corrin isn't even a part of their squadron. So Tavir asks Rock Squadron if they'll vote Corrin to the bolts, and they all raise their hand yes, except for Corrin. He doesn't want this. She then asks if the bolts will accept him as a leader, and all but Remart do. Seeing that he's outnumbered, he then puts up his hand to make it unanimous. After Tavir leaves, Remart just glares at Corrin in anger, thinking, this should be me in charge of the squadron. God, get out of here. He's the worst. Corrin knows that when the inevitable confrontation comes between them, only one will be walking away. Yeah. It's clear to Corrin that three other members of the squadron aren't big fans of him, so he just puts them with Remart in three flight and like, you guys just go over there by yourselves. Stay away from me. <laughs> he dreams of pitting them against Rogue Squadron or Pash Kraken's A-Wing someday, but doesn't ever really get the chance, unfortunately. Alas. Corrin also learns that the New Republic had not been targeting the Invids at Zafel. They were there for an entirely different purpose, and it was just dumb luck that the Invids ran across them. This allows Corrin to realize that the Force Advisors that Tavira has apparently can only sense direct threats against the Invids and Tavira, not just general ones that are in their way. So if there is a New Republic contingent in the system that they're planning to go to, but the New Republic is not there for them, the intent is what matters here. Those Force Advisors can't sense the danger. After the battle, once everyone's back on Corcus, Tavira conducts interviews with the pilots who fought in it. Corrin goes in and is told that her advisors sensed a presence at the battle, and they say a Jedi was there. They, of course, sensed Corrin what he was doing when he was projected to Tycho. Oh, actually, backing up to that fight against Tycho real fast, I love what Corrin thought about Tycho's flying. Like, this is what he could do without the Force. People like him and Wedge are just truly oh, yeah. the best pilots. Like, I can do what I do, but that's because I have something else helping me. They do what they do just because... They're that skilled. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I love that. Like, Corrin's like, you know what? I'm better because of this. But they are actually better than me. Yeah, like if I didn't have the Force, they would outfly me. Anyway, while Tavira is talking to him, Corrin can feel just someone probing his mind a lot like Luke did. And because of what Luke did, he's like, okay, I can sense this. I won't do anything. Just let it happen. But he's careful about what he lets them see because of his training. Corrin then spins a story and says that as a child, he was a bit of a Jedi fanatic. (laughs) And he also says, it all makes sense now. That was Luke Skywalker who fired those proton torpedoes at me. He was the founder of Rogue Squadron and used them against the Death Star. It's a bit of a leap of logic there, I feel like. (laughs) Corrin says he read a lot about the Rogues, including their history with Tavira, because he wanted to know more about the squadron that he had just fought and survived. Tavira says they're both survivors of facing Rogue Squadron. Tavira is also about to make Corrin an offer, but he interrupts her. He says that she's beautiful, but he's only here to fly, and she slaps him (laughs) for his presumption. I love that he interrupts her. I love that so much. And I love her reaction, because frankly, that's a good reaction to someone who makes that presumption. Like, Whether or not it's true, it's still a great reaction from her. I am not going to let you finish, and that's all. <laughs> and then she says she'll give him flying challenges within the week. Corrin is relieved that they didn't realize it was him using the Force in the battle. Which is good. Yeah, still undercover. Later on, at the cantina, Remart is in a good mood. Apparently, Tavira has chosen him for extra duties. Gross. Corrin is clearly jealous, and Kate calls him on it. Good. (laughs) He denies it at first, but he realizes she's right. He doesn't like Remart very much. They're clearly rivals, and Tavira is very attractive, so her choosing Remart over him feels like an insult. My opinion of Corrin has plummeted. (laughs) Like, I... 
I can't with anybody being attracted to this woman. She's nuts. She is. We then learn a little bit about the Kamasi. So again, Nija's friend was Kamasi Jedi, and the next raid will actually be against a group of Kamasi settlers. And apparently, right after the Clone Wars ended, the world of Kamas was brutally attacked and completely and utterly destroyed. But here's the thing. It was so swift and sudden, no one actually knows who did it or why it was done. Like This isn't Death Star over Alderaan where like it's clear why it happened. It's just... Yeah. Wait, what happened? It's especially weird because the Kamasi were pacifists. A Much. few did join the Jedi Order like Nietzsche's friend, but they were generally beloved by all, so weird to just kill them. It's not like Alderaan, but in some ways even worse. Yeah. And to make it even worse, several colonies were set up for the survivors, and one of the largest was, of course, on Alderaan. Makes sense. It does. Crushing, but it makes sense. One of the Kamasi colonies is the Invid's next target, and Corrin just doesn't feel good about it. This is one of the few times that moral dilemma is kind of put in front of him. But here's the thing. When they show up, there's already another ship there. The Harm's Way, and it's a known slave ship. So Corrin's like, all right, we take them out. I feel good about this. Kill the slavers. So convenient. Right? Corrin orders the fighters destroyed, but the larger ships be targeted with ion cannons in case there are any slaves on board. The slavers were not prepared for the Invids, and the Invidious completely obliterates the Harm's Way. No surprise there, it's a Star Destroyer. Yeah. The surviving fighters quickly retreat. The bolts head to the planet, and Corrin orders three flight to the spaceport. Corrin talks with Thavir and says the Kamasi are in hiding because of the slavers, so it should be easy to grab the supplies from the Rohis district and just not hurt or harm anyone. And she's kind of annoyed that he's just being so presumptuous in what he's saying of ordering people around. She's like, thank you for telling these things that I would have done, or something like that. She sucks. Corrin then calls Three Flight and asks for an update, but he receives no response. And he's a little confused and concerned about this because, again, Three Flight are the ones who all hate his guts. Yeah. So he flies to where they're supposed to be, and he sees their ships on the ground, but no pilots. He lands and goes searching for his missing pilots. He finds Remart beating up a Kamasi and also finds some dead slavers, jewelry, and other Kamasi as well. Corrin asks what's going on. And Remart says he killed the slavers, and then the Kamasi hit him, so he fought back, and now he's going to kill the Kamasi. Yes. This pacifist hit you after you saved him. That makes sense. Yeah. Corrin says no. He needs a body servant and claims the Kamasi for himself. Remart says he could just kill Corrin as well and blame the slavers. No one would ever know. <laughs> Corrin plays up to Remart's ego and challenges him to a fist fight. Good move. Remart accepts, and Corrin just quickly knocks him down. With Remart on the ground, Corrin asks the Kamasi the real st- for the real story of what happened and why the jewelry is so important. He says that the jewelry are family heirlooms, physical memories of those lost on Kamas. His daughter asked for them back, and Remart demanded something in exchange. When she said no, he sought it anyway. Remart's a real piece of work, isn't he? Yeah. Nobody's, like, among the invids, there are not many heroes, let's say. No. But I also think among the invids, he is... Uh, he's probably not the worst of them, but he represents scummier. the worst of them. He's certainly scummier than many. Yeah. At this point, Rembrandt has gotten back up and goes after Corrin again. But Corrin beats him pretty handily and pretty badly, though he does bust up his fist in the fight. Rembrandt has lost, so he tells the rest of the pilots with him to shoot Corrin, but instead the Kamasi shoots them before they can react. Which kind of shocks Corrin because Kamasi are so peaceful. Yeah. 
He then tells the Kamasi he is free to go, but the Kamasi says no. He will be Corrin's body servant. <laughs> Corrin saved him and his daughter, and by becoming his body servant, he'll save Corrin by making his story true. He introduces himself as Elagos Aklaw. Corrin then stuns Remart and calls for a medical evac for three flights. He ends up getting interrogated over what happened with his pilots, and he tells eh, mostly the truth, only leaving out the existence of the jewels and heirlooms. Afterward, he's given medical attention for his hands, and Elagos helps him just kind of generally clean up, make him look more presentable after the fight. And while he's doing this, Korn asks Elagos for the real story, since given his size, Elagos would have just flattened Remart if he'd actually hit him. Because Kamasi, they are, they're big dudes. They're weird-looking dudes, but they are big dudes. Do you know what they look like? No, I don't, actually. Oh, I don't know if I've ever seen one of those before. Yeah. Look at this guy. <laughs> yeah, those are fun looking. Yeah, they're really cool aliens. I like their design. They have like a fuzzy face and they have a kind of beak looking thing. They're, they're almost like birds, but with fur instead of feathers and humanoid in terms of shape. And just the facial expression looked kind of lemur-ish. Yeah. They're weird. I, I really dig their design. Uh, yeah. Cool. Elagos tells Korn that he had tapped Remart on the shoulder, wishing to thank him for saving them from the slavers. And he thinks that Remart must have interpreted this as an attack against him and hit Elagos. Yeah, I mean, Remart seems like the type of person who's always spoiling for a fight, so that tracks. Yeah. Elagos then says that momentous memories don't fade for Kamasi, and killing would certainly qualify as a momentous memory which is why they are a peaceful people. They don't want the memories like that to stick with them forever. They want memories of helping others, not hurting or killing others. And actually, when he had shot the other pilots, he had thought he had killed them, and was relieved to learn he only stunned them. Makes sense. But, you know, Korn had done such a great thing saving him and his daughters. Like, even if it was killing them, I need to do this. I really like Elagos. Yeah, he's cool. Tavira comes in and says that she's not pleased with Genos, Korn. She knows that he goaded Remart into a fight. True. She also tells Corrin that Remart is now dead, which shocks him because Corrin's pretty sure he didn't beat him that badly. Since Remart was insubordinate and struck a superior officer, Tavira had him killed. She can't have people like that within the pirate gang. Tavira then goes on to say that Corrin wanted her to kill Remart to punish her for not choosing Corrin. She says that he and Remart are a lot alike, which is why they were instant rivals and she knew that there would be a confrontation. And I think some of what she says is very true of them having a lot of similar characteristics and qualities, but just on different sides of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. But I don't think Corrin was looking for her to kill him. I really don't. Yeah, I don't buy a lot of this. No? No. Well, I I think what Corrin has presented, the front he's presented... It's just that we've seen so little of that front. Instead, we've seen him be like, use your ion cannons when possible. <laughs> and I'm like, how does that align with Remart? You know? I think what aligns is the the Eagle pilot thing. I guess, but unfortunately, this section of the book is not written in enough detail for us to see how egoistic Corrin has been amongst the survivors. I mean, clearly, uh, like he even didn't volunteer himself to ascend to Bolt Squadron. Yeah. Know? But at the very start, we introduced them. He clearly has a large ego. He's like, I'll take Remart's spot. Uh-huh. But that was only in front of Neve. True. But I'm, I'm sure that was relayed to Tavira eventually. But like, she doesn't have firsthand knowledge of it. True. She barely spends any time with these pilots. Yeah. 
Tavira says that she knows Jonas's story of a lost love that he's trying to get back. And she tells him, become my consort, and it will happen. She then kisses Corin, And as she leaves, she says she'll return in a month for his decision. Corin admits that he finds something about her to be fascinating and attractive. He also doesn't like her analysis of how like he and Remart are. He realizes the pirate life is bringing out the worst traits in him and thinks Remart is what I would have been had I fallen in with the survivors and not the rebellion. He truly did not expect Remart's death. That came as a big surprise to him. Are you okay? I'm dead inside. <laughs> My opinion of Corin has fallen so far from this little uh, adventure. Like... It, the type of person who's attracted to, to Tavira is not a person that I want to be in a room with. <laughs> not that Corin was someone I really wanted to be in a room with before, but like, just, you're not thinking about your wife. You're kissing this gross pirate lady. Corin is torn. On the one hand, he's always been faithful to Mirex, but this is the quickest way to free her. But while thinking this, Corin quickly becomes disgusted with himself and can't believe what he's thinking. Or even considering. Elagos tells him, if the wind no longer calls to you, it is time to see if you have forgotten your name. And Corrin says, you're right. I no longer know who I am. So Elagos tells Corrin to start where he is, and then work backward until he recognizes the last time he knew himself. Corrin realizes that choosing Tavira would be the dark side. The ends would justify the means. That's clearly dark side thinking. And he won't do that. Thinking yeah. back to the conversation he had with Brachus and others at the Academy. He also realizes that he's been treating his Corsac and Jedi identities as separate. Yeah, think. <laughs> he needs to unify them to find Mirax. Finally figured it out. This takes five pages. Give or take. And about ten minutes. Mm -hmm. This whole thing was just so thin to me. And then it was resolved so quickly. I do not understand why a hypersexual interpretation of Tavira was necessary. Especially if being with the pirates brings out Corrin's worst traits. Like, why wasn't it just command or prestige that she offered him instead of her body? I mean, if this was like a Thrawn-type villain, that's what would be offered to Corrin. Mm -hmm. But because it's a woman, this is the temptation that's placed before him. And then, like, he doesn't even wrestle with it for that long. Though the time he does spend wrestling with it makes me just vomit sounds. Uh, it also just feels like insult added to injury to Mirax, like she's already been in a coma for what feels like years. Months, and certainly. is at least months. And Corrin has not thought of her nearly often enough or hard enough during this entire book. It just, like I said, it makes me view Corrin in a much worse light that he is so easily tempted by Tavira. Like, I know that some people might argue with me that uh, like Mirax is kind of roguish and so that's a trait that her and Tavira share but Mirax is never cruel so the no. idea that Corrin is attracted to cruelty makes me think Mirax needs to divorce him and in fact looking <laughs> back to the rogue squadron books there was someone who was cruel who was attracted to Corrin but he was not attracted to her yeah so it just feels really out of character actually I I think it's it goes back to him, just the the pirates are being a bad influence on him. He would have been remarked if he'd fallen in with them type thing. I just don't buy that interpretation either. He started out as Corsac, 
And he's going to end up like Remart if he falls in with the survivors instead of Rogue Squadron. I just don't think he would have ever fallen in with the survivors. I could have seen him falling with the survivors, especially because of their hatred of the Empire. I don't think he would become Remart, but I think it makes sense for him to fear he would have become Remart. I think those are two different things. I guess. I just don't buy this whole thing at all. And like, spoiler alert, him and Mirax are never going to talk about this. Not that we see anyway. Like, they never explicitly talk about how Corrin was seriously tempted away from their marriage for 10 minutes. But admittedly, Kate did point out earlier that there was clearly like jealousy, a thing going on there. So I I mean, not everyone will agree with me, but I can I would consider something like that as serious as like it can be the beginning of a physical affair and it threatens to be emotional. Mm-hmm. But no, we're not going to talk about that later. Clearly, there were no pages left. I just wish there had been not enough pages for this either. Like, female villains don't always have to be sexy. That doesn't have to always be the temptation that they offer. I will step off of my soapbox now. Thank you for listening. <laughs> so Corrin returns to his, his quote-unquote home wherever he's living. It's like a weird... Almost like an apartment. Well, it was a hotel, it seemed like. Yeah. That, that they just sort of took, took over, over. As pirates do. You know, pirates taking over hotels. Yeah, makes sense. Space pirates taking over space hotels. Makes sense <laughs> to me. And apparently his room is just filled with presents from Tavira. And he thinks that, you know, a day ago he would flattered and thought that he had her right where he wanted her. <laughs> And he probably would like, you know, there's lots of like champagne other nights. He would have toasted himself a drink of having gotten For some so reason, far. I imagined that there were chocolate-covered strawberries in this room. I'm not sure if I made that up or, because it just fit the vibe. I think he made that up, but it definitely fits the vibe. Yeah. <laughs> but instead of accepting the gifts, he plans to become her worst nightmare over the next month. Good. She needs more nightmares. She does. And Elogos agrees with this decision, and then he says something very interesting. He says that this is a plan worthy of even your grandfather. Were you shocked when he said that? No. No? And here's why. There's no reason to introduce a new character this late in the game unless they're a plot device. Mm. And Elogos is 100% a plot device. So as soon as I knew he was one of the same... The Kamasi, the same species? Yeah, I was like, there's going to be some connection yeah. here. Maybe not to Korn's grandfather necessarily, but at least to his Jedi friend, Lennox. Yeah, so I don't know. I just thought to myself, the Force works in whatever way the plot wants it to work, just like hyperspace, and I moved on. Just like Stormtrooper armor. Yeah. <sighs> it's really amazing sometimes that I like Star Wars as much as I do because the the lack of a hard magic system really wears on me these days. I feel like today you would not be able to get into Star Wars. No, I wouldn't, which makes me really sad. But thankfully, I got into it when I was an impressionable young lass and it just sort of stuck there and now I'm stuck with it. And you're stuck listening to us. I, you're not. You can leave whenever, <laughs> whenever you wish. <laughs> the exit is as simple as taking your headphones off. Or turning your speakers off. Yeah, whatever. 
Corrin is shocked. Yeah, and so Corrin is yeah, shocked. Rightfully so. Because he doesn't realize that he's in a Star Wars story. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, who was General Som is who you always say that yeah. about. <laughs> yeah. Corrin yeah. is now General Som all of a sudden. Yeah. Som had no idea what universe he was in. <laughs> and he asks Elagos what he means. And then we learn a little more about Kamasi, and I, I think this is a really cool thing that I have. Yet another interesting alien thing that I was like, I just wish we would spend more time on this. Yeah. So apparently the strong me- memories of Kamasi that they have are called Memni. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Maybe Memni. And apparently they are more just, they're more finely detailed than a hologram and more precious than any material possession. And these really strong Memni, so, you know, things like, you know, killing someone or a birth of someone. Um, those things that a Kamasi can never forget. They can actually be shared with other Kamasi, which allows for better communication among each other. However, there is some limit to this. It can only be shared among family, and it essentially stops being able to be passed on after about three or four generations, approximately. And this is just another reason why they're so peaceful, because they don't want to share violent and bloody images and memories with each other. They want to share happy and peaceful things. This is just the way my brain works. I kept trying to think of like why in an evolutionary sense they would have developed this and it would be limited to three or four generations it made me wonder if their planet of origin was very cyclical in the sense that serious threats or dangers tended to like be dealt with within that time period and so there was no longer a need to remember certain, like, I don't know. And he, he does say they're really clear memories, but I don't have to wonder, like, is there some kind of like, degradation that happens over time? Like, yeah. Who knows? When, and when he says more detailed than a hologram, that's not hard. Yeah. Holograms are, <laughs> I think what people in the 80s thought were about as good as we were ever going to get in terms of, like, they probably thought we'd get better than that. Projection. But obviously that's been you know reimagined since then let's say elagos himself is a member of the claw clan and say that five times fast claw clan claw clan claw clan claw clan claw clan clan. wow that's pretty good thank you at this point corner up his grandfather nija knew an elenic ikla i'm probably butchering that name i'm so sorry elenic (laughs) elago says that was his uncle and sadly, he died on Alderaan when the planet was destroyed. He also says that Memni can be shared with Jedi if the two are close enough. The memory that Elagos has is of Nija's death, but it's not one that he can show Corrin right now. It's also not one that Corrin is sure he wants to see right now. That's fair. He's already experienced it from one perspective. Yeah, don't want to see it from another, at least not right now. Yeah, I get, I get that. I would want to see it. Because I would want to know how accurate my super weird dream vision was. Fair enough. I need data. (laughs) (laughs) So the two, they begin to make a plan. And while Corrin's hands heal, he's going to start scouting the city even more than he already has. And really just kind of getting deep with the pirate gangs that are here. So it's not just the Invids. There's also the Restars Radars, Shallow Huts Gang, the Black Star Pirates, and more. You mean it's not just the survivors? Right, sorry, yes, it's not just the survivors. Because technically they're all Yeah, they are all invids. They're Um, all contractors for the invids. Yeah, exactly, sorry, I misspoke it. It's more just the survivors. It's all these other groups. 
Elagos, meanwhile, will go through the data from Rostek and look for anything that may prove useful to Corrin. One of the things he found were Jedi healing techniques, letting Corrin heal his hands quickly, but he kept them wrapped to avoid suspicion and engender sympathy from the others. I feel like showing weakness is not a good way of engendering sympathy amongst these types of people, but that's just my opinion. <laughs> I think it depends. Like, if you're like at a bar with your drinking buddies, that like, you know, here's another round for Corrin because he can't. He's kind of this helpless old. They're not helpless, helpless injured. Yes, he's suddenly a helpless old man. Yeah, helpless <laughs> injured man. Corrin also wants to give Kate and the other members of the survivors a chance to redeem themselves. He thinks many of them aren't bad, but were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, thinking like, you know, he could have been one of them if he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And he also knows that spacers are notoriously superstitious and hopes to use that <laughs> to his advantage. So now he's going to put all of them in a horror movie. <laughs> yep. After a week of scouting, Corrin feels ready to start, but a lightsaber would help, and Elagos found a way to make one. It's just going to take a month to do so. <laughs> Unfortunate. Wild to think about. He doesn't have that much time. Reminder, Tavira's coming for him. In, in a month. three weeks at this point. Yeah. As Corrin scavenges for parts, Elagos reads more and more and finds out that Jedi developed a way to make lightsabers in two days during the Clone Wars. You know who'd be really useful right now? Who? M-Tree. Yeah. Just scrounge him. <laughs> Once Corrin has everything, he's able to build himself a lightsaber in two and a half days, so a little longer than the Jedi did in the Clone Wars, but still pretty good. I love the idea that there were two modes of lightsaber building. The one that you do when you have time to take and you can just relax and meditate for a month, I guess. And then the other situation where it's an emergency, but it's still going to take you two and a half days to build it. <laughs> like, from a technical perspective, this doesn't feel like it lines up really well with what we see in the Clone Wars, no. right? But I feel like from a just idea perspective, it does. Like, before the war, you could really take your time, do things proper, etc. And then during the Clone Wars, things were just so much more rushed. Like, yeah. I, I feel like that matches up really well with the, the idea of this, just yeah. not the technicality of this. I don't think it's so off. Yeah. Yeah. And just, like, I think this like also matches up with things like, you know, Ahsoka becoming Anakin's Padawan. Just like, you know, here's your Padawan. Go have fun in the middle of a war. And, like, all the, th and like all the Padawan they've just put into battle so quickly. Yeah. Like, technically is a fit? No. But just generally speaking, it fits the vibe very well. Yeah. Of just how rushed they were. Among the presents Tavira had given Korn were a number of crystals. So he decided to use those in the lightsaber. Because this is back in the day before Kyber was a big thing. Sorry, Kyber. And... <laughs> He decides to follow Gantris' route and build a lightsaber with multiple lengths. And I actually always remember Corrin has a lightsaber with multiple lengths. I always forget it's not his grandfather's lightsaber. Whenever mm. I'm doing my reread of the EU, so I was like, when he first the lightsaber, I was like, doesn't it change lengths? Do that. And, and I just having forgotten, no, it's not his grandfather's, it's the one he builds later on. Meanwhile, I'll never remember that piece of information. It's because he uses it in a really cool, unique way a couple of times. The just the extended lightsaber. Not in this book. No, but in other books. Oh, I guess we're not done with Corin. No. Spoiler. <sighs> oh well. <laughs> I thought that Stackpole didn't write much after this. Two more books. Okay. <laughs> Wishful thinking. <laughs> and Corin now considers himself both a pilot and a Jedi. Elagos also made him green Jedi robes and. And while all of this was going on, told anybody who came by that Corrin was drunk and not fit to interact with people. 
I'm trying to imagine what color, what, what shade of green these robes are. I was kind of like a dark green. Yeah, I'm hoping it's like a nice deep forest green. Kind of like the shirt green. that you're wearing right now? Maybe darker. Like darker than Yeah, darker this. than that, but... But not neon. Not like bright. Oh, absolutely not. Not no. grass green. No. So Corn decides to run with the story of him being drunk and starts going out into public, quote-unquote, drunk. And he's decided that the survivors will be his very first target. He as part of this, makes Jacob Nive see Captain Ziche Unar. The survivors had tried him, and Nive ordered his execution in the past. Corin acts like he sees the vision as well, but nobody else sees it. So remember, he's got that force power to like just put visions in people's minds. Yeah. So he's making poor Jacob see a dead person. The hallucination says, Doom is coming to Corcross. All your victims will be avenged. The image then fades into a bloody mist. And Corn also palms a coin onto the table to add authenticity to this ghost sighting. And the coin is something that was with uh, Unar when he died. It's like they all recognize it as being Unar's coin. Mm. Where did Qu- Is it just like it's not a unique coin? I don't remember. It may have, uh, they may have like put it in his mouth the way certain cultures on Earth have done in the past. Okay. I, I don't remember. But it was, it was clearly a superstitious coin that was used. Mm. Um, and then seeing that coin brought back along with the image really freaked not just Jacob out. Because, you know, two people saw the ghost, Jacob and Corin, or, you know, Genos. And everyone could see the coin because there's an actual coin just sitting on the table. Yeah. Within 12 hours, the rumors had spread with many others claiming that they had seen it too. And Corrin had decided to, give, to have the ghost give a warning. So when bad things started happening really soon, people would look back on it and be like, oh, the ghost is doing this. Oh, dang. Corrin also knew that he needs to take some kind of physical action next time and not just an image. So next incident, Corrin finds two drunks assaulting a woman. Great. He hits them. And when they pull out blasters, he pulls out his lightsaber and stabs one of them in the shoulder. But he lets them go. He doesn't want them to be dead. He wants them to spread the story. Corrin then offers his hand to the woman and tells her to tell them Doom has come to Corcoran. And then he plants an image in her head or in her mind of Corrin just kind of fading away. Yeah. Instead of walking away. Yeah. And I, I think he actually follows her home to make sure she gets home safely after everything that happens. Yeah. The next morning, Genos is told what happened. Someone tells him two laser lords. Another pirate gang. <laughs> laser lords. God, what are you? A kid's laser tag team? Honestly, some of these guys? Probably. Yeah. Two laser lords got badly mangled last night. Doom has come to Corcoran and it brought a lightsaber with it. Apparently, the Jedi creature is over two meters tall, according to rumor, and its eyes glow like event horizons of binary black holes, which I don't actually think are visible to the human eye. <laughs> I don't don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure you can't see an event horizon. Eh, whatever. <laughs> Apparently, this Jedi creature attacked without provocation and promised to do the same to everyone else. Very quickly, a 10,000 credit bounty is put on the Jedi. And Korn just, he hopes it's going to go a little bit higher than that. What a weirdo. He hits several soft targets over the next several nights, and bands of pirates start just wandering the streets in search of him, which you can't want that image. <laughs> it's not really. <laughs> what are they hoping to accomplish by doing that? Korn gets a pair of pirates to run directly into a wall, just 
He scares them, chases them, makes them think there's an alleyway, and boom, they run, run directly into a wall. And he says the next time you find someone from their power group, the Fast Blasters, oh in the streets, God. they'll die. Another children's laser tag team. One of them shoots at Corrin, and being the uh, extra Jedi that he is, instead of using his lightsaber, he absorbs the energy of the bolt with his hand and pulls the gun away with the Force. Three days later, the Fast Blasters leave Corcoran. Destination unknown. One down. Many to go. Yeah. Next, Corrin heads into the Black Star Pirate's Den. A droid asks for his weapon, so he cuts the droid up with his lightsaber. Here, here's my weapon. Destroying you. He walks into the middle of the den, gives a warning, and then leaves dramatically. The bounty climbs after that to 100,000 credits. There's one problem. Corrin has yet to kill anyone. A fact that others have started to notice, including Shallow the Hut. So Shallow lets it be known that he has set a trap for the Jedi, and his compound has become a fortress, and not even Tavira's future consort is allowed into it. So Corn has no idea what's in there. Shallow starts sending out henchmen to commit crimes to challenge the Jedi. Elagos doesn't want Corrin to go spring the trap, but Corrin says he has to. How very Anakin of him. Yeah. Or Obi-Wan. <laughs> So, Corrin enters the warehouse and sees Shala, but the hut does not appear to be nervous. He actually has a dead switch and says he has enough explosives to destroy everything around the building for a kilometer. Corrin looks around, sees the explosives, and determines that Shala is incorrect. It's enough to kill them and destroy the warehouse. Hopefully not that much more than that. Yeah. So, he extends his lightsaber the way that Gantaris did, hoping to destroy Shala's remote, but it sputters and dies before it gets to Shala. <laughs> Shoddy craftsmanship, only two days to make it, etc. In surprise, of course, Shala drops the dead switch and the explosion begins. Oops, Corrin, you messed up so bad here. So as the explosions go off, Corrin absorbs as much of the energy as he can and then creates a vortex to channel off the excess energy, pushing the flames upward and outward. As the explosion finishes... I really love this thing that he does. He projects an image into everyone that he can feel in the area. In the fire pillar in the sky, he shows it's coming out of a giant lightsaber hilt held by a giant hand. And oh my so god, it's extra. so extra. I love it. <laughs> so, predictably, Shala is dead. Uh, the entire warehouse has been destroyed. One might say cremated. No real collateral damage because he absorbed enough into himself. Yeah. Corrin's also naked because his clothes were destroyed in the rush of energy and fire and all of that. His body can absorb it. His clothes can't. And now he is exhausted. He has small cuts all over his body because shards of broken glass hit him during the explosion. He has no clothes. His lightsaber's on the fritz. He's still holding it, though. Yeah. So he flees and just hopes he won't be seen because he doesn't have any better options. However, he is spotted by two women. Thankfully, he's gotten far away from the warehouse, so he won't be connected to it. At about the same time as the two women see him, Elagos finds him and just loudly scolds him for being so drunk and crashing a speeder. And implies that the lightsaber that Corrin is holding is a spare part from said speeder. And the only thing left. I think the hilt of the lightsaber was taken from a speeder, so it looks like a speeder part. Yeah. And the two women just kind of laugh at this display, this public display of... Nudity. Yeah. Because it does sound pretty funny, frankly. Yeah. Back in his room, Corrin examines the lightsaber, and the crystal he used is a black lump. Turns out what Tavira gave him was a synthetic crystal. Apparently those aren't as good. The good news is he's able to get the normal blade working, and for now, 
that will have to just be enough. Corin has some fighters outfitted with hyperdrives. He learns that Kate and the other survivors have taken them. Corin had been training them on the fighters, so they knew how to jump to hyperspace. He was hoping that they would take the ships and get out of here, and they have. Yeah, he didn't want to kill them. Just scare them away. Yeah. So there is, for Tavira, she's got this great setup, right? She comes on the pirate gangs, calls on them. They go do a thing. They go back here. There is one weakness in the setup, and Corrin actually figured out the weakness, and that's that they cannot contact her. So this has been going on for a couple of weeks now, and she has absolutely no idea what is hilarious. What a stupid way of doing business. It is, but I also get it because no one knows where she is. They can't contact her. It's from a safety standpoint, it makes sense. But when something goes wrong with the pirate gangs, you're in trouble. But from a safety standpoint, what if she suddenly needs all of the people who were on that planet and she shows up and they're not there? There's yeah. nothing there. Like something terrible happened and she had no idea. Like in like, this yeah. situation. <laughs> that is the weakness. So Tavira has sent a communication ship to check on the pirate gangs, which apparently she does periodically. And the ship is just told what happened and like, Oh, this, this is bad. We're going to go tell Tavira about this. This is bad. A day later, Tavira shows up and barges into Corrin's room. She is convinced Skywalker is doing this to her and the pirate gangs because of what Corrin said. Corrin planted the idea in her mind. She also does not, because keep in mind, this part of the book happens well after Champions of the Force. She does not think the Sun Crusher has been destroyed. She thinks it is being saved to destroy the Invidious because her ego is bloody massive. She has a high opinion of herself. A little bit. She then slaps Corrin for not having dealt with the Je- Jedi situation while she was gone. She <sighs> just slapped him so many times in this book. And to be fair, he deserves it every single time. From her perspective, at least. Well, I think he just deserves in general to be slapped. I, I would choose a different delivering like Next. vehicle. <laughs> but if she's what I've got. Okay. <laughs> She scolds him and tells him to stop getting drunk and improve his behavior. She wants him to lead the opposition against the Jedi. She had... <laughs> I totally misread this uh, when I was reading the book. I interpreted it at first as she wanted him to lead the opposition against all the Jedi. Oh. <laughs> like, collectively. Because she thought it was Luke, right? And, like, Luke has an academy of Jedi. So there's maybe more than one running around this planet right now? Yeah, and I was like, you want this guy? <laughs> This one guy to lead the opposition against a bunch of Jedi? What? Jedi is both singular and plural. I know. And then I realized, I was thinking about it, and I was like not really paying attention to the next few paragraphs as I was reading, because I was just mulling that over, like, (laughs) that can't possibly be what she means. And then I realized, oh, the one Jedi. Yeah. Apparently, she has things to take care of, and we'll be back in a week, and expects to see results by then, because she is a... uh, Hard taskmistress. Kill a Jedi in a week. Where else? Mm-hmm. As she leaves, she also tells him that he should kill Jacob Neve because his spirit is broken and he's no longer useful. Will Corrin do that? Probably not. So clearly not all the survivors have fled, the way Kate and some of them did. Yeah. So Corrin starts going around to who is left on the planet and issuing orders, acting as Tavira wants him to. He's essentially now in Shallow's position of being in direct conflict with the Jedi. He just needs to figure out how to have the Jedi, quote-unquote, kill Genos, quote-unquote. Which, I, I kind of just love him thinking this in his head, like, how do I kill myself? 
I got confused more than one time <laughs> in this situation because I kept forgetting that his like fake name was Genos. There are already like enough weird names in these books, and he's go he has enough identity problems in this book. Yeah. So he goes to Jacob and projects an image of the Jedi to him, and the Jedi points a lightsaber at him and asks, "Where is Adanian?" and says, "He shall suffer the same fate as Shala." Just a reminder: Adanian is quote unquote Genos's. Last, Last name. name. As Corin leaves, he sees a group of five pirates and ducks into an alley. They follow him. Corin warns them off, but instead they pull out lightsabers. Blue, yellow, red, orange, and purple. And this means... And there could be There's other... There's a Sith. <laughs> well, I, I'd actually give a purple lightsaber. So Mace Windu famously has a purple lightsaber in uh-huh. Attack of the Clones. This predates that by a good four years. Yeah. And actually... I'm not sure this is the first purple lightsaber because I could, I could see some comics from the mid '90s having other lightsaber colors, um, but I, I just love that we could see five lightsaber col- colors all at once. It's such a, a cool thing to see. I don't think we ever see another orange lightsaber. I think on in, the screen or anything on screen. No, in I think Coder or maybe Fallen Order, you can make it an orange lightsaber mm. if you find the right parts. But yeah, on screen definitely not. In text and comics, I feel like someone does at some point. Um, but yeah, it's not, it's a very rare color. And yellow is really uncommon, but we have seen it. Ray has that at the end of Rise of Skywalker. Yeah. And at least going back to the Knights of the Republic era, I think it was typically Jedi healers who had a yellow lightsaber, if I remember correctly. Jedi Consular. Was it Consular? I think so. Okay. But yeah, it's in the modern era, modern being post-Jedi, not a lot of yellow. In the ancient... Didn't the Temple Guards also have yellow they lightsabers? Did. They did, you're right. Yeah. Those cool double blade one fold in half. Yeah. Like Dark Ray has. Turkey Red, of course. Or like the Grand Inquisitor and the visions that Kanan has of him. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly, behind this group, a sixth figure appears and brings out a green lightsaber. We have the entire rainbow, folks. And it's Cor- complete. And Corrin's like, oh, good lord, there's fire and this is going to be tough. And then the sixth appears and Corrin's like, oh, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. <laughs> now I'm in trouble. And then he hears a voice say something. No one need die here tonight. Because the green lightsaber is, of course, Luke. Convenient. Were you surprised? <sighs> no. No? <laughs> I was so happy the first time I read this that Luke appeared here. You didn't ask me if I was happy. Were you you happy? asked if I was surprised. I was neutral. Okay. I, I was also surprised the first time I read this, I think. You were much younger than me when you first read <laughs> yes, this. Yes, I was. Yeah. I just felt like... <sighs> Corin and Luke were not going to leave things the way they left them mid-book, so this okay, was a fair. convenient re-entry point for Luke into the story. I guess I wasn't surprised he came back, just I was just so happy how he came back, if that makes sense. Like, I thought it was a really cool In moment. the traditional dramatic Skywalker fashion. Right? Like, you know that he's been lurking on this planet for at least a day waiting for the proper moment to make his entrance. At least. You know, he says some stuff later about how he had a vision, and that's how he knew when... He- Corin would need him or whatever but I'm convinced that he was just waiting for the right, right dramatic moment. timing yeah. because that's a Skywalker trait so a fight breaks out and Luke and Corrin very quickly deal with all five of these lightsaber wielding beings leaving them unconscious Luke says that the force did lead him here but he also had some help and Oriel appears yay Oral. Oral says that he's a finesman and they just know when to look. He went to Luke to tell him that it's time to find Corrin, 
And then through the forest, Luke knew to come here. I need to know so much more about this Feinsman thing. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know when to look? What does that mean? <laughs> Gandar Wild, yo. Gandar Wild. Uh, like this, I know that this Feinsman thing is sort of unique to Oriel because he's one of the few Gand who can say I and stuff. And like, he's one of the few who can use first person. And you become a Feinsman apparently when you achieve that level. I think even they may have said that title back in Back to War, but like we had no context for what that was. Yeah. But I'm not sure on that. They might not have. Like, is he like not even a time traveler, but a time looker? Like he can look through time. Ooh, that's cool. I'm Maybe. just like, I'm trying to figure out what it means that they know when to look. You know what I'm saying? So strange. They bring the five now unarmed unconscious lightsaber wielding beings into Quarren Germ and Oral heads back to the ship and brings back an Etalamiri and Luke he's not a cop he doesn't know how to interrogate someone shocking I know <laughs> so Quarren just tells him you know what stand by the door look malevolent I'll do all the talking they start with the person who wielded the red lightsaber with the Isalamiri blocking the force, Corin lies to her and says that Luke took her abilities away. Corin also pretends to receive telepathic messages from Luke. He's basically acting like Luke is his mean boss and he's playing good cop. And I just love this interrogation scene. So it's so funny, I think. Sometimes Luke gets into it and like makes gestures and like points yeah. and like does frowny faces. That's <laughs> just so great. So she talks about not wanting to betray her people. Corrin takes a guess and says Tavira will kill her people regardless if she talks to this point because Tavira will see herself as betrayed by you being captured. And eventually, between all five of them, Corrin and Luke learn a lot about these five people and where they come from. They are members of the Jensarai. There are three A's in that word. Yep. They were trained like Jedi, but Unlike a Jedi, building a lightsaber isn't the culmination of everything. It's building the armor they wear, because they all have this really cool, unique, interesting armor. Very protective armor. Good against lightsabers. Yeah. And apparently, when Tavira fled the New Republic, she arrived in the Swarby system. And at the time, it was still under Imperial control. She killed the local Imperial governor and declared it free of the Empire. The Gentarai had been hiding there, protecting the moon known as Susevfi. I think. Good enough. <laughs> and the people who were there didn't even know of the Gensarai's existence. They came to Tavira, and she cultivated their trust, and then she betrayed them. How very Remart of her. How very Tavira of her. And she told them if they don't serve her, she will destroy their home. The Gensarai are also the ones who picked up on Mirax's intentions in the Force, and Tavira wanted to have her killed, but the Gensarai wanted to keep her as a prisoner instead. For so. unknown reasons. They're not bloodthirsty the way Tavira is. I think it's what, like, they just don't want to... No, I think there's a specific reason they decided to keep her as a prisoner that's revealed later. Yes, you're right. But right now, it's unknown. unknown. Yes. Corrin goes to Jacob Neve and tells him the truth about everything and about who he really is. He then offers Neve a deal, which Neve accepts. The survivors will help them go after Tavira in exchange for a fresh start. For now... Uh, Neve will watch over the five Gensarai within the Salamiri while Corin and Luke head out to get Mirax. Yay! 
Elgos and Oral meet, and they quickly become fast friends. Talking about Corrin behind his back. <laughs> talking about dealing with Corrin. Looking after Corrin. How challenging it is. Corrin also apologizes to Luke for all the things he said back at the Academy when he left. And Luke accepts the apology, but also says that it's not necessary. I think Luke has realized that a lot of what Corrin said was he needed to hear. Yeah. It should be said that earlier when Luke and Corrin cross paths again in the alleyway after they've dealt with the Gensurai, Luke says of the vision that led him there that if Corrin was still on a good path, basically, Luke would find him here. If he had fallen into, like, say, Tavir's clutches, he would not be here. Yeah. So I feel like Luke has also seen evidence that, oh, Corrin has faced the dark side and Again. not fallen, just kind of like he told me in his ranty speech. Yeah. <laughs> They've both grown. Nice. Yeah. They arrive in system, and Elgos is carrying a blaster ready to fight, and Corrin tells him he doesn't need to. But Elgos says if they fail without him, that will be worse than if he kills someone. Besides, he's going to use the sun setting. And it reminds me a little bit of Firefly when Shepard Book says the knees are a little more open to <laughs> them or not. That, that was the vibe I got from this conversation. Yeah. As they get ready, Corrin thanks all of them for helping him get to this point, because without them, he would be dead in an alleyway. Or frankly dead earlier if Elgos hadn't got him on the right path. Yeah. So, they break into the Imperial compound where the Imperial governor used to live and where Tavira has set up shop. As they enter, Corrin is now close enough to actually sense Mirax, and so he knows exactly where to go to find her. When they get to her, she's in some kind of sort of Jedi trance, so Corrin asks Luke to bring her out of it, and as she comes to, he kisses her. Aww. Very That's sleeping beauty. It's nice. No? Not nice? It's fine. I... I will just say that I was never, like, super invested in this relationship. I was just pretty neutral on mm -hmm. it. And after all of Corrin's blundering, I almost said a curse word. <laughs> after all of Corrin's blundering in this book, I'm a little bit like, I don't know. You two have a lot to talk about. <laughs> they do. You need to go to couples therapy. They do. Everybody does. <laughs> As they fight their way out, they come across a hologram of Tavira, and she sees them, and she realizes that Korra was the Jedi on Quarkus, and she is, she's not very happy. But Mirax shoots the comm to make her shut up. Yay. They get to Tavira's office, and six Genserai are waiting for them. The leader challenges Korin. Luke deals with the other five in the meantime, though he does try to avoid the fight at first. Luke easily handles his opponents, and... Corrin's like, wow, you didn't need my help in the alleyway, did you? Corrin's <laughs> fight, though, is much tougher. He's about to lose, but he breaks an image into his opponent's head. That of Nikos Tyrus. Nikos Tyrus is the Anzadi that Nija faced and died to in the dream he had. She falters, and she says master, and Merrick then stunts her. Corrin had recognized her fighting style as the same as the fighting style of his grandfather's killer, so Corrin took a chance to put the image in her head and hoped that it would work, and it did. Or that it would just cause her to stumble a little bit. Yeah. The Invidious is moving to destroy the city, but then the Errant Venture and Backstab show up, and X-Wings pour out of both ships. Corrin reaches out to Tavira, and he replaces the Errant Venture with an image of the Lusankia, and then the Suncrusher appears. <laughs> so Tavira orders a retreat. 
Mirak says that Booster will claim he drove her off and will be insufferable. She's right. If you get far enough away from Booster, he can't be insufferable. <laughs> you just gotta stay away from him. Colonel Gert formally surrenders the survivors to Tycho after the battle, because of course it was the it was Rogue Squadron that came out of these ships and the rest of the survivors. And they will actually stay on Susevi, giving them a fighting force as they petition to join the Republic. Corin and the rest talk with the defeated Genserai. The Genserai blame the Halcyons for their situation because of the battle vision that Corin saw in his dream. Elagos offers to share his memory with Corin of Nija's death and then have him project it to everybody else so that they can see what really happened. And at first, they're not sure about this because they don't really trust what Corin's going to do in the situation, but eventually they're convinced of it. Corin sees everything from Elenic's perspective. He thought of Nija as Spicewood and the other Jedi as Desert Wind because I guess Kamasi have good noses. Yeah. After Nija died, Desert Wind said that Nija knew Tyrus was too good with a blade and would defeat them, so he sacrificed himself to defeat him to save the others. And I really like this idea of Nija's sacrifice being like, I'm about to die, but I'm going to do it by saving everyone else. And I think this is a really nice callback to the original Rogue Squadron book. Going back to that base that they were on, and the Imperials have infiltrated it, and Corrin's like, okay, I'm, I'm probably going to die. Yeah, I'm going to die, but I'm going to die saving everyone else. Yeah. And I, I really like that trade is something that basically their family shares. And I, I thought that was yeah. nicely done by Stackpole to tie those two things together. So I think going back to an earlier thing that I had a confusion about, this makes more sense and I understand better what he meant by it. There's a point earlier in this book where it's talked about how the Halcyon line, because they don't have telekinesis, is more likely to like stubbornly stand their ground and get killed. I think this is what because they he can meant. get telekinesis by being shot and stabbed. Yeah. It's just that it was super unclear. Like, the two things did not flow one into the other in that part of the book. Mm -hmm. And so it seemed like you have less power, so you're more stubborn and willing to die. Like, is it just a pride thing? Because that's kind of stupid. Part of it's definitely a pride thing, because the horns and halcyons are very prideful. Corellians are known to be prideful, so that's definitely part of it. Yeah. The Gensari then tell them a little bit about their side of things they did not learn the ways of the jedi instead and i thought this was very interesting they were taught sith teachings their masters the three that we saw in the vision apparently uncovered information about the sith and thought the jedi had stolen and perverted their teachings gen Sarai is actually a sith word for hidden followers of truth but Luke says they didn't really act evil as they were the defenders of this world for a long time even though the source of all of their information about the Force was the Sith. Sith-oriented. They aren't wholly good either, though. They need to be committed to the defense of everyone, apparently, and not just, like, one world. The small moon. Because they, while they were protecting this moon, they were doing terrible things to other people. Yeah. Like, if you're just protecting a place and but not doing terrible things to others, that is perfectly fine, because a Jedi can only be in so many places at once. Yeah. But because they were acting evil but was to protect them is why it was kind of that weird middle ground luke offers them a place at yavin 4 and they say they'll consider it elegos at some point during this conversation with all the people around i think you know i've heard this from Tycho. oh 
I think one more thing before we move on from the discussion of the Gensurai. Yes. They kept Mirax because okay. they had seen like their destruction in her death. Like if she died, it seemed like they thought basically Luke and Corrin and the Jedi were going to like come down smite them. Yeah. So Corrin would have. Yeah. So they kept her alive and in stasis, hoping to like waylay that, I think. Prevent their own doom because yeah. they didn't have a better option. They couldn't let her go back, of course. Yeah, because then she would lead everybody straight to Tavira and to them. Elagos has learned of the tradition of leaving things at Alderaan for those lost, um, something that we'd seen Tycho do back in the Back to War. Luke and Aura will take him to his daughter, and then they'll travel to Alderaan so that they can leave something for Elenic, who died there. I really love that tradition. It's one of my favorite things that I don't know who created it initially. But I really love that just aspect of going to the the graveyard of Alderaan and leaving something for those that you have lost. Yeah. It's like a Viking funeral just in space. A little bit. Corrin says that someday he'll do the same for Alenic as well. Corrin says that he's not going to go back to the Academy. And Luke says, well, actually, I was going to ask you not to come back anyway, so... Corrin's like, was I that bad? <laughs> Luke's like, no, I just don't think you... It's not the time. It's not the right fit. <laughs> your your path is elsewhere, and Corrin agrees. He will rejoin Rogue Squadron. But he also says that Kieran Halcyon isn't dead. He'll just fade away for now. But if, if Luke ever needs Corrin or Kieran, he will be there to help always. Corrin does make one request of Luke. So as the book closes, he's now back in his X-Wing with Whistler on Yavin 4. And they destroy Exarcoon's temple, completely leveling it and the statue with proton torpedoes. Love that image. And then over the comm... Corrin tells Mirax, we have to tell your father our first child will not be named for him. Ending the book. That's fair. Yeah. So that was the extremely long two-part episode of I, Jedi. I feel like this will not be the last two-parter we do. Great. I'm looking at you, Vision of the Future. God, for just like a little peek behind the curtain for reference, it took us four sessions to record these two episodes. It's... You haven't done any editing yet. It's going to be really long. Both yeah. of them are going to be long. But do you have any closing thoughts that we didn't get to in the four hours that we've talked about this book? So I like this book a lot. I love seeing the insight into Corn's mind. I love the stuff that Jedi Academy. I really like the pirate stuff. But and I think we already said this before. I really think this would have been much better as a two-parter. There's so much time and detail spent on Yevon 4 it feels like the second half of the book could have just used more time to breathe and would have gotten that with its own separate, own published book. However, given that this was published before I Search Revenge, and I don't know exactly where Stackpole and or Bant Inspector were in the planning process for that and other stories, this may have been the only option to do all this at once rather than two books. Yeah. Like, they may have told Stackpole, you know what, you can either do this and I Search Revenge or two books for this and no I Search Revenge. And I think he felt he needed to tell the story of I Search Revenge at least for the Lusenki part of that. I think the part that surprises me is just that I may be misremembering exactly the numbers here, and it may have been slightly different in this era of publishing. But there is actually a threshold for what publishers consider like prohibitively cost-inefficient to publish. Oh, yes, I have heard about that. And I think the length of this is over that the length of this is over that. We've got a lot of books that are... I know. And, like, it's it's much more... I will say it's much more common in, like, 
the fantasy genre speculative fiction overall for them to kind of go over that length but i feel like this could have been just because it is so long it would have been a good opportunity for them to split it in two and each of the books could have been could have had slightly more room yeah like i said this was i think what six five pages give or take so it's Ish, about, yeah. about three pages for each you can do like 400 pages for each or like 350 or something yeah maybe like three to three fifty for the Jedi Academy, and then like four hundred for the Pirates, because that's really what needs the, the extra yeah. space. Yeah, I don't know what what happened with that. I did also like I I feel like I rarely want anything to be longer. Like I don't want to drag things out. It's just that there was so much in the back half of this book that was so rushed. There were so many time skips while Corin is among the survivors and the invids because we had to spend so much time patching so many holes from the Jedi Academy trilogy in the front half. Steps. Yes. And parts that Corrin was absent from. But I really wish we could have had a more fleshed out back half because I thought it had a lot of potential. Like, mm-hmm. bring more pieces of Rogue Squadron in to go undercover. It would have been really great if Corrin had been recognized during Zafel so that Tycho sends Oral to him earlier as undercover backup. You know, like get more of our, my favorite characters involved, because this is all about me. Yep. <laughs> Do a lot more digging about Tavira's force users before all is revealed at the end, because like the Jensrai are kind of out of left field. They, like the, we know there's some kind of force thing going on with her since the very beginning of the book, but they are so. They should have had a more a closer presence earlier than the alley thing. Right. I, I love the scene with Exar Kun when he shows them to Corrin. Like, that's really well done. But, like... But that's really yes. That's not enough. Yeah. They needed to be closer sooner. I, I think if this is a two-parter, that would have been perfectly fine yeah. as a tease for the next book. Yeah. It would have been. And then, obviously, like, do a complete hard rewrite of Tavira because I hated everything about her. I could tell. Please, for the love of God. What a terrible character. <laughs> and then we didn't even deal with her. Yeah. Like, she gets away, and you've already told me, like, we're never coming back to this plot point. So she's just wandering the galaxy with her Star Destroyer. So I, I actually have a theory about this. Seriously weakened, but, you know. Uh, again, this is towards the end of Bantam Spectre's publishing cycle. Del Rey is going to pick up the Star Wars license uh, within, like, a year or two of this. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, and they and Del Rey obviously completely changes the course and timeline of how star wars is going because they're the ones who do the new Jedi order and that's one of the very first things they do yeah like they completely revamp the star wars universe with that yeah not a reboot but a hard pivot it seems like very much so so i I wonder and i'm betting stackpole had more ideas and plans for tavira and the invids in the future but when that hard reset happened there was not a way to bring them into the fold and I can't help but be grateful, even though I wish that she would have been dealt with here. Yeah. and Because it, I don't want to see more of this woman. Yeah, that's even like at the start of a random book, oh, the rogues dealt with them. The end. Because it's just a lone star story. There are no force users. They are not, they're not helpless, certainly, but they are not the power they are right now. Yeah. It's like, you know, if that's a prologue in a book, that'd be okay. Yeah. Just wrap it up. Yeah. But <laughs> sadly, that doesn't happen. I'm sorry to tell oh, you, well. I'm the listener. I'm going to imagine the booster blew her out of the sky. <laughs> because, I don't know. That'd be fun. They sort of deserve each other. <laughs> One of the central themes in this book is Corrin's identity and who he is. Is he a Jedi? A cop? A pilot? 
in the end, he comes to the conclusion that he's not one of these things, but instead a combination of all, and it's something that helps him rescue his wife by the end. And I feel like the identity is a big thing of Star Wars, and I enjoyed seeing Corrin just struggle with who he is and with the question of what do I do, who, who, am I, who do I become throughout this book? And I really like the conclusion of I am not one of these separate things. I am all of them combined and more. Yeah, I did enjoy the struggle for Corrin, but I wanted it to have a lot more room especially as we started to run out of road near the end. Mm-hmm. Corrin's big turning point after Tavira comes on to him features a crisis that lasts the span of about five minutes. And after that, his identity is solidified. I didn't, I mean, first of all, I just didn't like that as his turning point. I wanted him to have a totally different one because I don't like Tavira. But I also wasn't impressed at how quickly he bounced from identity to identity, like some kind of frantic ping pong ball, <laughs> just ricocheting through space. I don't know. I thought Corrin had a better head on his shoulders than that going into this book. Like, it felt it felt uneven with his previous character development. And I feel like part of that is just that the order that the books were written in... Yeah, like, again, this was written before Ice of Revenge, yeah. and that takes place... Well before this. Yeah. It just felt uneven to me. So sometimes I refer to Corrin as Troll Corrin when he started doing (laughs) run Jedi tactics against the pirates. And I very much enjoy Troll Corrin. Well, I think this section of the book could have used a lot more fleshing out. And And more rogues involved, please. Can you imagine the pranks that he could have escalated with all of them there? Oh, great. But what we see, I really just love him watching mess with the pirates it feels like something he picked up from his grandfather and it feels like he's just conti- that tradition of trolling people with flowers i feel like corin just took that and ran with it and i very much like that connection between the two of them but i feel like it also calls back to the rogues it does it calls back to both sides both call- yeah. to the pilot him and the cop at him i wanted them to and be the there. jedi it would have been so much fun if they'd been there it would have been i mean i know that lots of them have died but on, as stated in the beginning of the book, we still have Tyker, we still have Gavin, we still have Oral. There are still not, some of the old guard left. Yeah. Those would have been great picks. So in concept, I really like the idea of the Gen Sarai. But, you know, like we said, their story was really rushed at the end. A group of Force users who follow some Sith teachings, some, not all, but who are actually trying to do some good in the galaxy is one of the more unique Force groups around. And I think they should have just had more time in the spotlight. Yeah, like, I 100% buy their origin. Oh, yeah. There are, like, the galaxy is so vast. I would bet that there's lots of isolated corners where they've come across some kind of ancient documentation on how to use the Force. And it could be stuff like, you know, the Witches of Dathomir use the Force in a totally different way than the Jedi do. One of the cool things about EU in the 90s, we're going to see this in future books, is there are we come across other force groups besides the Jedi and the South. Like other force traditions. Yeah. And some of them are really interesting, like the Dathomir Witches or the Gensarai. Some of them less so, but it's, it's still just cool to see other people using the force differently. I can't wait to see the ones that are less interesting. Well, it, that, it's more personal opinion on who's more or less interesting. Like the Dathomir Witches, despite not being in a great book, are one of the most fascinating force groups to me. Yeah. And my final thought this book, Elagos is great. Oral is great. Whistler is great. But this story did not have enough of any of them for my taste. Yeah. Given how personal this story is to Corrin and where his journey takes him, I get that they just don't really fit in, especially in the first half of the book. But 
doesn't mean I don't miss them and wish they could have been brought in in other ways. Like, I'm so happy Oral comes in at the end. Yeah. So happy. Why wasn't Whistler with him? Great question. And again, if this is a two-parter, more space, maybe we see more of them. If I'm like, I don't know, armchair psychoanalyzing what Stackpole was doing here with when he reintroduced some outside characters, I feel like he picked like characters who were representative of parts of Corrin's identity. So Oriel for the pilot part, mm-hmm. Luke for the Jedi part, Elagos for the connection to his biological heritage. But then you're missing the cop part. Yeah. So like Whistler would have been a perfect addition yeah, there. Especially because this was written in first person, which has a real has a real risk of like too much navel gazing of the POV character, which definitely, definitely happened. It's better to this is very reductive advice to creative people who make stories in whatever capacity, but I do think it's a solid like foundation to start with avoid leaving your character alone for too long and corin was alone too much in this book i think that's probably the reason why elgos was brought in so he was yeah. not alone especially as he starts doing the right thing yeah and i i think with cycle trash was like when he's by himself he he does need that help to kind of <laughs> fix himself corin needs help he does <laughs> he's a he's a mess he is <laughs> okay it's been about 24 hours since you finished the book i think almost exactly actually yeah (laughs) we always time it so well let's get to the questions okay let's talk about the future it's not like there's a sequel to this particular book no but this will certainly have an impact on other books and the rest of the star wars universe yeah i guess that's inevitable huh can kip and corn reconcile their relationship and become friends can they? Probably. Should they? I don't think so. My Still dearest, more Kip fan? My dearest wish is for Corrin to be able to put Kip in jail. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel as if I must qualify. I don't really like cops. I just feel strongly that Kip belongs in jail. <laughs> or some kind of punishment. I, I'm not even going to say punishment. I'm going to say supervision... And rehabilitation. That's fair. That's what I'm going to say. But Luke is just, I mean, Luke is the only one I feel that could really like run that sort of operation for him right now. And he's just blatantly unwilling to do it. So, Will Korn ever return to the temple on Yavin 4? I mean, I'm sure he'll visit. Will he return as a student or a teacher, maybe? I definitely think he should return as a teacher. As a teacher, not as a student. Yeah. Okay. I think, like, he can be a guest lecturer. I mean, Luke's going to come across other Jedi who have this special alter mind vision thing. And Luke's going to be like, I don't know what to do with that. Right? Yeah. I mean, surely Corrin is not the only one for whom this is the path their power takes. Agreed. So, I... I don't feel like he's going to be a good fit there as a student just because I don't think there's a teacher there who fits his power set very well. So unfortunately, I think a lot of Corrin's growth in the Force going forward is going to have to be much like Luke's was, very self-directed. And also, I think more than a lot of students, 
I think similar to Gantris, Corrin was is an adult and already is set in his ways. It's kind of hard to become the student again. I think that was something he struggled with. I mean, like, given he, all he, of the it, other shenanigans going on in that place, I too would struggle to debase myself to idiots. But you know, like Corrin clearly has an idea of how a school and an academy should be run, and it doesn't really match. Luke's idea. Yeah, Luke wants to run a yoga retreat in the wilderness. Corin wants to go back to police academy. Yeah. <laughs> or at the very least, like, crash training in the rebellion or something. I personally think that even Jedi need discipline in their lives, and Corin is more right than Luke on this one. Will Corellia ever join the New Republic? This is probably a bad time for me to say this, but I'm not totally clear on what Corellia's relationship is to the Empire, the New Republic, or anyone at this point. Essentially independent. Okay. Not really affiliated with either side right now, keeping to their own it's, business. It's just that the diktat is kind of nuts? Yes. Okay. So he's his own special... Their system is their own special situation. I mean, I think it's possible. Do you it think would be a huge get, right? Like the yeah, the shipyards and stuff there would be. Do you think the Republic would at least try? I mean, they should. Like, send Han, hope he doesn't get shot down again. Don't send Han. I, I got the vibe from Corrin in this book, definitely, that like Han cannot be an ambassador to his people. Yeah, probably not. Yeah. They, they like, I feel like they would see Han being sent to them as, like, an insult. Some probably would, yeah. Like, uh, this guy's a Corellian. You'll like him, right? How much do you want a spinoff starring Oral and Elagos? A lot. Yeah. I actually want them to get together mm-hmm. and just have their weird alien relationship. And complain about Corrin a lot, I guess. <laughs> Maybe they can ditch Corrin. It's a strong foundation for a beginning of a relationship, I feel like. Yeah, all of the complaining they're doing about Corrin. Related, should Mara and Mirax ever meet? I mean, I'd love it, but you bet I'm going to chuck Luke and Corrin right out the window as soon as <laughs> those two are in the same room together. Forget those ships. This one's much more interesting. <laughs> And I know that I'm not going to get that. Like, Mirax is not going to divorce Corrin. No, sadly. And her and Mara aren't going to raise the child that Corrin and Mirax had. And they're not going to be great smuggler girlfriends together. I'm sorry. <laughs> this would be great fan fiction that precisely three people would read. <laughs> right? Uh, I'm not going to. Okay, sad. So related to the question of their child, what do you think Corrin and Mirax will name their child? Well, there are not strong contenders on Mirax's side of the family divide. Booster. Obviously, we're not naming this kid Booster because that's simply insane. I think Kieran, Nija, mm-hmm. and Rostek are strong contenders. Okay. That's just we get some male. What if it's a female? What if it's a little girl? Kieran can be gender neutral. Okay, yeah, that's that's a good point. And Nija ends with an A, so honestly, it can sound kind of feminine. Yeah. And, yeah, Rostek definitely sounds more masculine, but honestly, all of the, like, gender tags we put to names are just made up anyway, so... So why not? Like, I'm sure other people in our audience probably know of some 
relatively well-known podcasters who named their two female children Charlie and Cooper. The McElroys. Oh, they did? Justin and Sydney. Oh, okay. I, I mean, though I think Charlie's, like, legal name is Charlotte or something, but, like, definitely, like, male-ish. I've definitely heard Charlie Ford uh, used as a female name before, though. Yeah, so why not Rostick? Fair enough. Rosty? Rosta? Tech? Tech? Tech could be a cool nickname. It reminds me a little bit of uh, Lorsan Pekka. Mm-hmm. I feel very strongly that this is going to be one of the names, and I'm going to be disappointed if it's not these three. Even though I strongly disagree with people naming their children after historical, like, fan. But Kieran is far enough away. I, I feel like Kieran's far enough away. That's a pretty safe bet. Even form. Nija is pretty far removed. Like, yeah. Corin didn't actually know him. Rostek is the one that I'm kind of like, eh, that's a little too close. I mean, Corin could also go the absolutely boring route and name a son Hal, right? After, After his father. father. He'll probably do, like, Hal Rostick Horn or something. It's not a bad name. I'm so curious whether or not I'm right, but I'm going <laughs> to restrain myself from looking it up or from badgering you. You'll find out in time. <laughs> How much time is the question? It's going to be a while. Yeah, it'll be a while. Okay. If said child is Force-sensitive, will they have any better chance at telekinesis than Corrin? Science points to no, sadly. You don't think that Murek's blood, that Tarek's blood <laughs> will help out? No, because, like, any any hint at, like, Force-sensitivity on her side seems to run much more towards, like, just luck. Just, like, general mm. luck. I mean, I don't, I don't really love this whole, like, there are very specific powers in the force that basically can't be like you have to have some intrinsic ability in them or you can't Mm -hmm. use them so i think i would like i mean i would like it personally this is not really like it's not like it would be bad if this was not true just i personally would prefer if any child of theirs didn't have such a struggle with telekinesis and maybe also didn't have as strong of a Vision. Vision power. Okay. As Corrin. That's just my personal preference. I'm just manifesting it into the universe for books that were written decades ago. Well, we'll see what happens sometime in the next couple of years. Their child totally is going to be part of the new Jedi Order era of, like, younger Jedi, huh? Potentially. I feel like that's an obvious... Or, like, in the young... Jedi Knight series, maybe that's an obvious place for such a person to reappear. So what I will say that is for the Junior Jedi Knights and Young Jedi Knights, those are about Jason, Jane, and Anakin. If they have a child... What, they don't have friends? No, I'm just saying, if, if they, whenever Corey and Mary have a child, something they do, they will be quite a bit younger. Oh, are you telling me that, like, once people decide to have a child, sometimes it takes a while for them to actually have that child? Because so far in Star Wars, that is not <laughs> how it has worked. <laughs> I'm just saying, they could be close enough in age to Anakin. To Anakin, yeah. And not, like, that far off from Jason and Jaina. Yeah. And now Corrin's, like, best friend slash intellectual rivals with Luke. So, like, of course, any kid of his is going to get in with the Solo Twins. (laughs) We shall see. (laughs) But, yeah, that wraps up I, Jedi, the fifth book written by Stackpole, but the sixth book by Stackpole we've read for this podcast. Wow. 
really experts in Stackpole at this point. Two more to go. Just to round out the library. Next up, we'll be returning to Tales from the Most Icely Cantina and reading One Last Night in the Most Icely Cantina, The Tale of the Wolfman and the Lamproid, written by Judith and Garfield Reeves Stevens, and it is the last story in this short story collection. Wow. You can look forward to that being published on November 20th. Thanks to Thomas for editing. And thanks to Christopher for going on this crazy idea. And thanks to you for listening. You can email us at tk331podcast at gmail.com if you have questions for us or comments to us. You can follow us on Twitter at tk331podcast. If you like this podcast and you want it to be, I don't know, successful, more widely listened to, you could talk about it on social media. You can leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. You can share it with a friend or your weird cousin who loves all things sci-fi. And you you know what? If you hate this podcast, share it with your enemy. Yeah. (laughs) That's a great point. (laughs) You could also do some chalk drawings in your neighborhood that featured the name of this podcast and maybe like draw a cartoon image of me stabbing Tavira. What do you look like? I don't know. Imagine it. <laughs> I'm unknowable. Fair enough. <laughs> and yeah, we hope you like this special bonus episode. Yeah. <laughs> of iJedi Part 2. I hope Electric Boogaloo. you, Tom, enjoy editing this special bonus episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's and your fault and I don't feel sorry for you. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> and now here it is. You're one of Star Wars. I tapped the force, letting it fill me, but turned my head toward the chair and away from Jacob. You can't sit here. This is a private table. As I said that, I reached out with my senses and projected an image into Jacob's brain. Jacob's head came up, and he blanched. Not possible. The figure he saw sitting down opposite him spat out a thick golden credit coin that bounced once on the table. My left hand swept out to grab it, then I slapped down the credit I'd palmed. My left hand recoiled. It's cold. The figure across the table from Jacob wore an imperial captain's uniform, albeit a bit too small, and had a mouse under his left eye. In fact, Captain Zlis Onar of the Crusader looked exactly the way he had after the survivors had tried him, and Jacob had ordered his execution. Jacob himself had stuffed the gold credit in his mouth following the old superstition of buying off the evil things the dead would say about the living, then had had him pitched out of the backstab's main airlock.